Welcome to Talking in the Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Good morning, patrons. This is Will Fenton, the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm here with Dr. Sarah Knott, Professor of History at Indiana University. Dr. Knott wears many hats. She's been the editor of the American Historical Review, the author of Sensibility in the American Revolution, and, I might note, a past recipient of a Library Company Fellowship. She's also a mother, a role to which she's brought her skills as a trained historian. In a new book entitled Mother is a Verb in Unconventional History, Dr. Knott intertwines memoir and history in an extraordinary transnational account of maternity that spans from the 17th to the end of the 20th century. Welcome to the library, Sarah. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, what are we looking at here? Oh, so this is wonderful. Um, We have a pamphlet. Its title is An Essay Upon Nursing and the Management of Children from their birth to three years of age. And it's by a physician, a mid-18th century physician, um, called William Cadogan. So Cadogan was a, he was a physician. He was a governor of the founding hospital in London. It's 1748 when he first publishes essay. He has a small child at home. And he's interested essentially to reform how women usually do things. So we have, if you can imagine this with us, it's a small pamphlet. It would have cost six pence. It tells us on the title page. What the Library Company edition tells us also is that this is the seventh edition of 1757. And we know that there are about 10 editions of the essay published over 25 years. So we can think of this as a text that definitely circulated, you know, that was definitely read, even though the copy here is beautifully pristine. And I have to read you the opening sentence because it, it, the opening sentence gives us a great deal about what the pamphlet is going to become. It says, Sir... It is with great pleasure I see at last the preservation of children become the care of men of sense. Right, so this is a moment in the mid-18th century in which ordinary forms of childcare, traditionally seen as simply women's province, are coming into or under the scrutiny of uh, male physicians um, who have very new ideas about what best practice might be. And so if we turn the page here on um, page five, he says that um, he's really seeking to convince, quote, most nurses, aunts, grandmothers, etc., how much they have hitherto been in the wrong. So in this, he's almost like any other how-to guide uh, writer, which is that he's setting out to, to reform practice. But actually, my interest in this book is something slightly different. I wasn't interested in the history of medicine. Uh, I wasn't particularly interested in the history of physicians. I was interested rather in uh, trying to figure out um, the experiences of the wet nurses who were in the employ of the foundling hospital. So shall I tell you a bit about that? Please do. We can switch, we can <laughs> switch from William Cadogan um, to a figure called Margaret Collier. We can switch to the year 1757, actually. So yes, the year that this particular edition was printed. And we can imagine ourselves in uh, Chertsey in Surrey. So, William, so Margaret Collier has an infant of her own. She's a working class woman. She's figuring out how to um, replace some of the wages that she would have lost from um, being unable to perform agricultural labor in heavy pregnancy and with a very small child. And so she, like many other women in Chertsey, um, takes up the occupation of wet nurse. And she um, begins to nurse a foundling called Anne Stafford in, in the January of 
1757-8. And then uh, she adds another foundling a couple of months later. So there she's at home with three infants that she is keeping alive with her own body. So what's wonderful about the essay upon nursing for me, asking questions about um, Margaret Colley's experience, is we get a sense of how her usual ways of doing things, ways that she would have learned from her own female community, are under pressure from the decrees that are coming down from the foundling hospital about how you look after babies, and specifically the clothing that would have come with them. So Cadogan and his colleagues were on a on a campaign, really, against swaddling, I mean, against these very usual early modern practices. So they sent their babies out with loose clothes. Hmm. So when we imagine Amer- the experiences of Margaret Collier, we can imagine someone who, sitting still and nursing, would have been holding a baby that felt on her lap, in her arms, entirely different to that of how she might be ken- tending her own child. Hmm. And so for me, Cadigan is wonderful in giving us that very visceral insight into the tactile world of wet nurses. So what do we gain by thinking of mother as a verb rather than a noun? Ah, so you're picking up on the title of the book, right? Mother is a verb, an unconventional history. When I think about the history of motherhood, I think what we know most, and what historians have really given us since um, the women's liberation movement, is an incredibly rich historiography about mother as an institution or as an ideology. Right, that's where that's where women's historians began, and they have overleaved that scholarship with an intersectional scholarship that has thought about how identity and ideology fall differently on different kinds of women, and that's a wonderful scholarship. My quarry was somewhat different. I was interested in a really particular dimension of maternity, that is to say, pregnancy and birth and the encounter with an infant, and I was interested in mother as a verb, that is to say, to notice that mothering is a set of activities that are done among many activities. So that was my starting point. It was not motherhood with a capital M, not mother uh, as institution, as identity, but rather mother as a verb. And what I found very powerful about that was that it allowed me to pluralize and specify a whole series of experiences and activities that otherwise kind of fall underneath the radar. So I became interested in what is the history of how of sleep, of sleeping, or in fact, of sleeplessness. What is the history of feeling continually interrupted? So I found in the switch to mother as a verb, a whole new set of historical questions that I found entirely intriguing. Yeah, I'm thinking in particular of this moment in the text where you're talking about pre-industrial sleep being a segmented sleep. You have like the first part of the night where you have your very deep sleep, and then you have a point of wakefulness, and then you have a second part, which is sort of the dream state. And that that, if memory serves, sort of aligns in some interesting ways with maternal night. So that's great. When I first started working on this book, I was taking notes about my own experience. And I mentioned the word sleep 70 times in the first 10 pages of those notes. So when I was interested in giving a history to maternity, sleep was very much on my mind. (laughs) Sleeplessness, my own insomnia, my own fatigue was very much on my mind. And I loved that social history of sleep, which tells us, that the early modern night was broken into two, right? That this first night, which is deep sleep, and then there's this pause when people were up. You know, they'd get up, they'd feed their animals, they'd have sex, they'd pray, and then they went back to bed, and in second night they might dream. And I found that notion that other people were up in the middle of the night too incredibly comforting mm. at first glance. And I thought, oh, okay, this is all much more convivial. Maybe this is what the experiences of new mothers were like. Maybe actually it was much easier 
because no one had expectations of our kind of modern eight-hour sleep. But in fact, as I spent more time with the sources, I found quite a different story, which was the complaint, for example, of a a mid-18th century poet laborer who said, we don't even have time to get to second light. We don't even have time to dream, she says. And I ended thinking that, you know, we know from modern research that babies tend to sleep polyphasically. They sleep in many segments and that the sleep of mothers has tended to have to follow that. So I was kind of in the end with a wonderful 20th century uh, poet called Alicia Ostreicher who describes maternal sleep as like a dirty, torn cloth. Hmm. She's a wonderful metaphor. It's a very early modern sounding metaphor, isn't it? That seemed to me the, the kernel of insight in terms of thinking about what a history of maternal sleep might be rather than just a generalized history of early modern sleep. To circle back to the idea of interruption, which you brought up in your previous answer, at one point you call interruption the main condition of maternity, perhaps on account of what Lisa Baritzer terms the constant attack on narrative that a child performs. I'm sure that there are some sympathetic parents listening right now. <laughs> Can I ask you to speak a bit about the role of interruption in the story of writing about mothering? That's a, that's a wonderful question. And there are several ways into answering that question. The first would be from the process of research and the number of times in the early months that I read a letter which stopped just as it was getting interesting. So here's a letter from 1878. I'm sitting at my, in my home. I'm reading this letter and it says, baby is stirring, so I must stop. No. And then a few days later, I'll read another letter and it will say, Fanny will sit on my lap and interrupt me so much that I must stop. And I found that moment of a letter being interrupted again and again and again. And for, at the beginning, I felt as if the, this, these materials just weren't telling me what I wanted to know. And eventually I realized, no, actually what they're showing me is that for these women letter writers, interruption was a fundamental condition of maternity, right? And so that moment of frustration for me interpretively switched into a moment of insight into, no, this is... This is actually a foundational experience of, of mothering. It was my own experience of attempting to research and write alongside having first one small child and then another. So I recognized in myself that experience of being continually interrupted, needing to research in tiny spates of time and write in tiny spates of time. And I wanted to write a book that did something very similar. Mm-hmm. And then actually quite late in the day, I came to the writings of the maternal theorist, Lisa Baraza, who you mentioned. So she's a psychoanalytic thinker. But she observes that rather than the ambivalence that women's liberation is placed as the sort of sine qua non of mothering, she says, no, actually, the sine qua non of mothering, its fundamental condition is in that moment of interruption. It's in that split second of interruption. That's, the, that's maternity's content. And I found that a remarkably rich proposition to bring to my research and to my writing when I was thinking about writing through this book about maternity. So... As we're thinking about an interruption, I can't help but not bring up the role of temporality in this mm-hmm. text. So, for example, in, in your chapter on staying the month, you toggle from your life in present-day Great Britain to 1926 Alabama, right. to Civil War Texas, <clears throat> to 1960s Korea. How did you organize this project, and why did you settle upon that non-linear chronology? Yeah, so thank you. That's a, a lovely question. And the, the chapter that you alluded to uses that method at its most extreme, I think. that The, the chapter 
is little more than a series of disconnected anecdotes that are merely juxtaposed, serialized, accumulate. So this is a chapter that follows on from, from birth. Its ostensible subject is that period of recovery that is allotted. Maybe it's six weeks, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a week or 10 days, depending on time and place and culture. For me, it was an extraordinarily disconnected time, and I wanted my writing to reflect that. And so, yes, the temporality there moves very abruptly between these different moments, shards of evidence, small scenes, that together, I hope, convey what is in fact the broadest point of the book, which is that these experiences, the recovery after a birth, these experiences that are often treated as remarkably trans-historical or universal in some way, are so determined by the body as to be beyond, in fact, historical analysis, they turn out to be remarkably various. And it was that variety, it was the variety of the most visceral of experiences that was really at the heart of the interpretation I wanted to make here. And that chapter really points it up in its most sort of extreme form. Yeah, so I'd like to think about what I, what I see as a, a really important uh, form of evidence in this text, which is that of the anecdote. Mm. You write that prior to 1970, motherhood is expressed in the hundredweight fragments from which you assemble what you call a trellis of tiny scenes. Perhaps the most redolent of those tiny scenes is the anecdote. And I'd like you to maybe walk me through how you think about anecdotes as evidence. Where did you look for your methodological models? Lovely. Thank you. So I think the first thing to observe is, of course, anecdote is a very familiar mode for the historian, right? We can go back to the 17th century. In 17th century historiography, when historians were almost first time turning away from men and wars and ideas as the center of historical work and wanting to tell histories of private life, for example, they saw themselves as reaching for anecdote. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one historiographer described this new kind of history writing in the 17th century as anecdote graphing, Mm -hmm. which if it wasn't quite so ugly and cumbersome would be a (laughs) phrase I would want to sort of pull forth and forward and use in our own present day. So there's a long tradition of historians seeing anecdote as as showing us something, as telling us something, the most recent version of which would probably be in cultural history. I open any journal that traffics in cultural history and you will read an article that begins with a vignette. It's a common sense, become a commonsensical, highly familiar form of historical analysis. And my time at the American Historical Review really showed me that, right? This is one of the ways we enter an essay. It's one of the ways we move between one section of the essay and another. It's one of the ways we end a piece of historical analysis, right, is with the anecdote that, sh- that distills or shows us something. So I'm, so in that sense, I'm trafficking in something that's very, very familiar. In a different way, I'm not. And the different way I'm not is that what I found in bringing together material that was so elusive and fragmentary, the, 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 the way to try and dignify this history and, in fact, give it the depth that I wanted to was to bring anecdotes one against one another. And what I came to particularly love about this was that it meant that the, at first glance, richest evidence, which would, would be you know, the evidence from educated white middle-class women with their interrupted letters mm-hmm. and their occasional anecdote sharing, right, that, that evidence gets pulled onto a single plane with the tiny shards of evidence that one can find of non-literate historical actors, right? Mm-hmm. all of those women of color, working-class women, all of the other kinds of people that one wants to bring onto the stage 
can be brought onto the stage on a single plane through this mode of telling anecdotes. Mm. So, so actually, anecdote was working for me in a lot of different ways interpretively in this book. Yeah. So, so it sounds to me that anecdote serves as a means for you to address gaps in archival records when we're talking about non-middle-class Victorian white women who are overrepresented in depictions of motherhood. If you're thinking about enslaved peoples, if you're thinking about working-class peoples, you're looking to those anecdotes as a primary form of evidence. Exactly so. And so if we circle back to where we started, which is the figure of Margaret Collier, we have not one voice in the archives, at least that I have found from, a, from an early modern witness. Not, not one. But if the task is to convey Margaret Collier's experience in little more than an anecdote, one can do that when one reads William Cadogan and when one reads the records of the founding hospital inspectors you know, who are complaining about how the wet nurses send word ahead that the inspectors are coming and you know get, get, your, get your kid out of the right clothes and in, out of the wrong clothes and into the right clothes and so on. You can tell anecdotes like this. You can tell a tiny anecdote about what it might have meant for an enslaved woman in antebellum South Carolina to have quickened, right? Because what you don't need a lot of information. What you do know is that she felt that quickening and that that moment of quickening and a certain diagnosis of having a child, her, her world has shifted. She is less likely to be sold away because she has been reproductively successful, which is one of the burdens placed on enslaved women. Perhaps... The work tasks that are required of her, she knows, will shift at some future moment. So anecdote turns out to be really useful if you're a social historian. Mm-hmm. And especially if you trust in a, a method that's about juxtaposing and contrasting and accumulating. If you allow that to be an interpretive method that tells us something about the past and you privilege that over change over time, mm-hmm. over the reach for a grand narrative that convinces and that holds for everyone very hard to create grand narratives that convince them that for everyone about the subjects that I have put at the heart of this book. Now, this is almost certainly my own deficiency, but quickening was new to me. May I ask you to quickly define quickening for so anybody else? You may, <laughs> you may. And I learned this as an immigrant that it seems that so quickening is an ordinary word in our present day in England, where I'm from, but it's not actually shared vocabulary in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't been for a while. There's a, there's a 1917 novel in which quickening is presumed to be the moment when a baby takes its first breath. But it's not. Quickening is actually nothing more than the moment in which a child quickens, that is to say moves, in such a way that the mother feels it. So if you open a contemporary medical textbook or a mother's guide today, it's conventionally in the sort of third or fourth month. So that is what quickening means. And even in our era of global English, it seems that there's a, there's, it's a word that's still owned by women in Britain, but it's not a word that is conventionally owned here. You know, quickening, which is experienced haptically. Uh, yes. That brings me to this question of the senses associated with motherhood. When I think about how we measure and evaluate the progress of maternity, I think about it in terms of sight. I think about it in terms mm. of the sonogram. Has, has sight become the dominant sense of, of tracing motherhood? Perhaps not. And if it is, when did that shift begin to happen? I think if we think diagnostically, that seems like a very safe claim, doesn't it? That diagnostically, there's a shift from haptic modes of diagnosis to externalized forms of medicalized diagnosis. That seems like a watertight historical claim to me. 
And the sonogram is actually based on Second World War technology. It was technology that was developed for submarines and then reappropriated for medical usage. So I find that actually a rather delightful, strong, strong argument to make about change <laughs> over time. But I don't think it's a generalization that holds for, say, the experience of pregnancy. Yeah. Because I think the experience of pregnancy, the daily experience of pregnancy, in fact, involves touch continuously. I mean, that quickening is an inner touch. One of the things that interested me, actually, in thinking about the senses was to re-forward touch as a fundamental experience, a repeating experience mm. of pregnancy that we can then historicize, right? Like what? So, so that moment of quickening, you could, I think we can make a universal statement that most women who are pregnant, who have successful pregnancy, and most trans men today, experience quickening. But what quickening means is extraordinarily specific to time and place. Mm -hmm. So in our contemporary world, it's not medicalized. Mm -hmm. No doctor is keeping track of whether you've quickened or not, because you've in fact been diagnosed as successfully pregnant for some months. That's very different from an early modern English woman for whom it's a definitive moment. Perhaps it's a moment of ensoulment. So even something as simple as that feeling inside a person that might that is most likely to happen when they lay down or when they're still, even that feeling is incredibly historically specific. And I make that discovery of specificity mm-hmm. time and time again through the book. I'm thinking even about the vocabulary that's used to describe paternity in babies. In the case of babies, you have this one thing where you mentioned that the underside of a baby is in one text referred to as the, the keel of a ship in 18th century England, yeah. which which makes sense because England is becoming this maritime empire at that moment. And then in the late 19th century, post-Edison, a baby's nervous system is described or equated with uh, telephone lines. So it's fascinating to see how those information technologies and how those larger social issues sort of seep into the vocabulary. And of course they do, right? Because what, what is more of a blank slate for us than an infant? Of course we bring to bear upon infants all of our cultural preoccupations, often unwittingly and often with a lot of moralism. I, th- I found the, so the instances you give came, come particularly out of the how-to guides. And I, but I also found in the sort of more workaday vocabularies just fantastic insight into mother as a verb. So some of my favorite evidence is about how people actually talked about babies so in the victorian terrace houses that i was living in when i had my second child so working class houses in the turn of the 20th century the child who'd just been kicked out of his mother's bed because the newborn had arrived was called the dowager baby which is just a wonderfully evocative phrase it really captures something in black midwifery in the 20 mid 20th century those black midwives making home visits described babies as lap babies or yard babies Mm. in white tenant farmers described newborns in contrast to knee babies Mm. right and the knee baby is the is the next oldest child who is clearly of knee height right Mm. and that knee baby telling us a very different story about sibling conflict than the one we might expect that knee baby is presumed to have a special relationship with the newborn because they're the closest they're already closest to the mother and they're seen as the newborn's best protector Mm. right so these vocabularies end up showing us they give us wonderful insights into topics like sibling rivalry, just workaday presumptions mm-hmm. about what it is to be with an infant that are really remarkable. Yeah, and you also include a host of wonderful adjectives that give a sense of how people thought about late pregnancy in yeah. particular. So yeah. here are a few. 
bagged, bound, heavy. Those were terms that circulated in the 15th and 16th century. And you had teeming, great womb, and big bellied that circulated between the 16th and 18th century. Mm -hmm. And then there's an interesting turn when we get into 19th century, particularly amongst elite women, where we have the more uh, demure become in the family way or in a delicate state of health. What did those terminological changes tell us about how people thought about maternity? Well, they certainly tell us a lot about how elite women thought about maternity, (laughs) don't they? So there we have that early modern vocabulary that is so earthy. It's so bound up with a cultural moment in which childbearing was more important than child rearing, mm-hmm. and the families were larger. And then that shift that the vocabulary expresses so exquisitely into an early 19th century moment in which women's reason was being celebrated, women's bodies were being receded culturally, right? And suddenly it's impolite, it's unrespectable to use terms like pregnant, certainly great wound. And we get these extraordinary euphemisms, like you know, in a delicate way, that that are not just about public speech. They're, they they show up in ordinary letters between elite women friends, for example. Mm. And my favourite example of this is actually a dictionary of slang from the eighteen eighties, where the explanation of a woman in the family way is that she's in the pudding club. So you have a you have a text where one euphemism is relying on the, on another euphemism. Mm. You know? So yes, language is language proved to be a remarkably rich source for me in writing in writing the book sort of finding words that are lost to us and seeing practices that were lost in turn was, was very powerful you include this uh, wonderful thought experiment about maternal how-to guides which you alluded to just a few moments ago particularly those that were produced between the 17th and 20th century and that experiment ultimately compels you to dwell on the problem of uncertainty because mm. as you point out <clears throat> Even in the 20th century, we have this mass production of paperbacks. Not all that many people are reading these. So then the question is, how do you, you know, account for uncertainty? You ask, what is the history of knowing what to do? And what is the history of uncertainty felt or dispelled? So where might we look if we wanted to assemble a history of uncertainty? <laughs> well, we can look to the how-to guys for a history of riling people up and making them feel uncertain, that's for sure, right? I mean, the the how-to guys are in a certain sense about the production of uncertainties that then need to be dispelled by expertise. So there's one history of uncertainty that runs through the how-to guides that are here in the library company, right? When I first set out trying to figure out how to use those how-to guides, I wrote a chapter called A Thought Experiment that was in part thanks to one of your librarians having taken me into the bowels of this institution and mm. shown me the books arranged by century. Mm. And that was delicious. Mm. And so I wanted to conjure for my reader that same process. I mean, I, so I conjured a thought experiment in which I imagined that all of the, the how-to guides from the 17th century were brought together on one set of shelves, the 18th century on another, the 19th century on another, the mass market paperbacks of the 20th century on another. And I tried to browse those shelves mm. for my readers. And then I get to the end of that chapter and I, I sort of throw my hands up and I say, but I really don't know what that history is. It's a history of knowledge and it's a history of reformism, but I'm not sure it gets us very close at all to the kinds of questions I'm interested in. Mm. And there's a pause and I'm frustrated. And then I came upon a 1942 text, a how-to guide, in which there was wonderful penciled marginalia, right? Always the gift for a historian mm-hmm. of the book. Wonderful penciled marginalia 
right next to a moment in the text that observed that you know, the problem is that the new mother is the recipient of all sorts of different forms of knowledge from all sorts of different constituencies. So her own memories of her upbringing, her mother and grandmother and aunt, right, so senior women figures, her peers, and then finally maybe medical experts. And the reader had, had written an exclamation mark next to that next to that prose. And I felt as if in that moment the, what the reader had given me was a set of categories that I could then go back to and think through in terms of understanding both a history of uncertainty, why do people not feel like they knew what to do, and also a history of knowing. How did they in fact come to know? And so the chapter that follows the short thought experiment explores each of those possibilities. So uncertainty is not a transhistorical condition of maternity would be one generalization <laughs> I would want to make. You know, I think it's, produ- it's produced in certain times and places where older forms of female knowledge and experience have been displaced and in which expertise that often comes from the outside and comes with a claim of solving uncertainty produces uncertainty in its wake. Mother as a verb really blurs the boundaries between social history and memoir, scholarship and, and, and poetry. About pregnancy, you marvel, we defy mathematics. One plus one equals one. I am myself and not myself. Later, while breastfeeding, you recognize my neat autonomy, my firm edges encased in skin have dissolved. How did you write this book? How did you balance the conventions of academic scholarship with the intimacy and self-reflexivity of this project? So first, it's very much a history in the sense that it pursues the protocols that historians really care about, that I care about. That is to say that we read each other's work, that it, you know, that it builds on a huge amount of scholarship that has gone before it, and that it seeks to be empirically utterly rigorous. So in that sense, it's a highly conventional history. <laughs> where it does, where it reaches into unconventionality and where it, I hope, oh, perhaps it is a poetry book, that's a, that's a kind comment. Where it does that, I have really been inspired by other forms of history writing. I'm very inspired by maternal memoirs by writers like Rachel Cuskin and Maggie Nelson, who've explored their topics in different registers. And so when I first started writing this book, I wrote through memoir because I wanted to connect to a wider group of readers than I thought I had done in my first book in an academic monograph. And so the memoir became a way of writing something that might feel legible to a reader of novels and memoir who wasn't used to walking into a bookshop and wanting to walk into the history section. We all know what history sections look like in bookshops. They are not staffed with books about gender or maternity or women's lives. So I wanted to reach that reader. And then as I was writing through this first-person form, I realized I was asking different kinds of questions than I would have done otherwise. And that was extraordinarily exciting. And that's really what I pursued, was what kind of history would writing through first person allow me to do it allowed me to stay with topics that I would otherwise have thought dull or weird like damp cloth it allowed me to ask questions that simply had not been asked like what is the history of maternal sleep and writing in a first person also allowed me to to air exactly those dilemmas of intimacy and self-reflexivity and process that normally we keep in our footnotes or don't place in our texts at all and so rather than being a text that is narcissistic or unbearably white because I'm a white person it could be a text that actually aired 
some of those dilemmas and that self-reflexivity as it went along. So I found it quite a powerful and very enjoyable way of approaching the task of being a historian and writing about the task of being a historian. Yeah, towards the end of the book, you include this artful term that was entirely new to me, matrescence, or the process of becoming a mother. Would you consider this book a matrescent work? And if we are to imagine that as a kind of genre, what is the stuff that might furnish future archives of motherhood? Will future historians, for example, come through mementos and baby books, but also Instagram stories? Right. So I came upon the term matrescence very late in the process. And in fact, it's in the note on method, isn't it, at the very end of the book. So thank you for reading the book so scrupulously for me. And it's an anthropologist's term. Anthropologists are very interested in the process of becoming a mother, which is not a category that historians have cared too much for. So it's a useful category for us. How historians of the future might write histories of this type is great. And I have learned a little bit about this since the book came out three weeks ago in Britain. It's just come out here, but it's been out since the beginning of March. And I have been contacted through that social media marvel that is Twitter by complete strangers who have wanted to send me photographs of their diaries. And in particular, they have sent me the scraps of keeping track of when their babies fed and slept. In other words, they've sent me their materials, the versions of the materials that I use myself. That's the stuff of it, right? It's, it's ephemeral. It's, um, it's stuff that turns up in the corner of diaries that usually have doctor's appointments or hairdressing appointments or you know, lecture appointments in my case. So it's pretty tricky to figure out how you get to that stuff now. We keep less of that stuff than we did before. And I suppose if I was a historian writing this in the, pre- in the future, the first place I would go would be every single last mummy blog, mm. right? Where you get a fantastic compression, in fact, of ideology mm. and practice. Mm. I mean, a unique configuration of ideology and practice mm. you know, that would need its own mode of analysis, I think. But that's where I'd want to start. I'd want to start with the stuff if I was a future historian. I'd want to start with the, the bits of paper, I'd want to start with the material culture, which is changing so rapidly, right? The the way in which objects shape how we parent, that's one of the places I would start. I found maternal tools incredibly effective in helping me see what a past experience might have been like. So think about the difference between the 17th century English woman or the white settler who who has the rocking cradle on hand and is held in her home in comparison to her contemporary Native American uh, mother or maternal aunt or grandmother who has a cradle board on her back and can work outside. Those are extraordinary different ways of experiencing the need to care for an infant. If I can ask you to linger a little bit longer in the present, why did you write this book when you wrote this book? I suspect that some of the answer has already come through in in our discussion, right, that I, I had a first child. I was thrown, surprised, compelled, and I was a feminist historian who couldn't believe that she didn't already know the history of the experience that I was having, especially because most times and places agree that it's a transformative experience. We don't need to be moral about it. We don't need to say it makes you a better person, but we can notice that that it's transformative in some way. So I 
in a certain sense, I wanted to write the book that I wished had been available for me to read. And I wrote it in and among the many people with whom I was doing this new mothering. And then there was also a, a sense as a historian, I was incredibly excited to be doing something that was in itself in transition, right? That I was doing this at a moment in which um, queer family making was newly visible, in which hospitals were begin beginning to develop protocols for pregnant trans men. I mean, there was a sense that mothering was up for grabs again in a way that was deeply exciting and in a way that, in fact, was fellow traveling with my own sense that mothering, while visceral, is remarkably various, right? And I could look to queer studies uh, for a guide to how to think about how you give a history to ordinary visceral experiences. So it was a sense that mothering was changing in our present day in ways that were exciting and open-ended and also in ways that were of concern because caregiving is treated with utter contempt in late capitalism and we have the rolling back of welfare services and rising inequality and those transitions are never good for mothers or children or parents and the infants that they care about. So I would be remiss if I didn't <laughs> ask you to talk about one particular anecdote that happens to involve Benjamin Spock the library company's collection of mother manuals, and of course our eminently well-raised librarian. So who is Benjamin Spock, and what does he have to do with Jimmy Green? That's a lovely place to end, isn't it? So, <laughs> so I had the great fortune of working here in the library company on my first book, and Jim Green, your librarian, was a very influential figure for me then, a very generous figure. And so when I was writing this book, and in fact stuck at home most of the time, and stuck in my hometown, I got back in touch with Jim because I knew that the library company had a really remarkable set of uh, medical manuals that were don donated by the medical historian Charles Rosenberg. And so I asked him to send me the call list because I thought that was a great place to start in terms of thinking about a bibliography of how-to guides. And of course, because I already had a relationship with Jim, he happened to mention along the way, and I forget if this was in an email or on the phone, that, of course, his childhood had been profoundly shaped by the fact that he had been born post-Spock, unlike his brother. And this was a remarkably intimate and wonderful thing to learn about him. So Spock was a mid-20th century physician who tried to revolutionize American forms of childbearing and in certain sense succeeded. So Jim's unfortunate older brother was raised in a very austere regime in which the usual way of doing things was highly regimented. It was all about going by the clock, putting that baby down and letting it get on with things. Spock just had a very different message. He said, you know, trust yourself, enjoy your baby. You know more than you think you do. And this was greeted with a, a sort of certain amount of breathing out and delight by new parents in the 1940s. So, so the story that Jim told me there was clearly a story he grew up with. It was also a story I found in oral histories of Oxford mothers in the 1940s or in the letters of women in Missouri from the same decade where they said something like, you know, well, and then Dr. Spock came along and that was sensible. Well, that made it a lot more fun. So his story was wonderfully redolent. Mm -hmm. I may be the only historian who's in fact put Jim Green in the text of my book, <laughs> not just in the, in the acknowledgements. Well, we are certainly grateful for that. And I'm particularly grateful for you coming in and speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you so much.